Before we get started with today's episode, we have a couple of updates. So we wanted to update episode five, The Moscow Murders. This was sent in by Justin Madsen, so thank you for that. The house where the University of Idaho murders took place was razed to the ground on December 28, 2023. If you recall, a rental was donated to the university after the murders took place, and university spokesperson Jody Walker said, It's incredibly powerful and emotional to see it come down. We've turned it into the next chapter, whatever that next chapter is, and that definitely is a bit of relief. Some of the victims' families opposed the demolition, calling for the house to be preserved until after the trial of Brian Koberger, who stands accused of the murders but has yet to be tried. Prosecutors hope to try Koberger in the summer of 2024 and told university officials they don't anticipate needing the house any further, as they were already able to gather in measurements necessary to create illustrative exhibits for the jury. The Lada County Prosecuting Attorney's Office declined to comment on the demolition, citing the gag order placed on them and restricting what lawyers in the case can say to the news media. In October 2023, the FBI collected data that could be used to create visual aids at the trial. Koberger's defense team was given access to the house earlier in December 2023 to gather photos, measurements, and other documentation. It took about three hours for the house to be raised. There was a security fence surrounding the house prior to the demolition, and it will be reinstalled and stay up for about a week until contractors return to grade and level the site so it can be planted with grass at some point. There are currently no other plans for the site at this time. The other update that we have is regarding Gypsy Rose Blanchard. She was released, if you remember, on December 28, 2023, and she has not gone quietly into the night. She has amassed over 6.4 million followers on Instagram alone. She's active there as well as on TikTok and other social media platforms. So she definitely has not gone quietly into an unassuming life. She posts frequently about her and her husband. She has an upcoming ebook coming out, and she has also been giving interviews to the media. So we just wanted to give you guys a quick update on both of those things before we get started with this week's episode, which will be on Reva Steenkamp. And as always, thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? You know, I'm doing pretty good. This holiday season's been a bit crazy. I think everyone can agree to that, but... Oh, yeah. You know, good food, good friends... Some good family, getting some nice time in. Can't yes. can't complain about that at all. And we're going to be welcoming in the new year with one heck of a case, aren't we? Yes, it's our 13th episode, in fact. Lucky number 13. And as our listeners will hear at the end of the episode, it's a pretty special one given the day that we're airing. Yes. So do you want to take it away for us? Yes. Our next episode takes us to Pretoria, South Africa in 2013. All right. So Pretoria is the capital of South Africa, obviously. Now, Pretoria was founded in 1855 by Martinius Pretorius. He was a leader of the four trekkers who were like Dutch settlers in South Africa. 
and he named it after his father, Andreas Pretorius, and he chose a spot on the banks of the Appes River. It's Afrikaans for Monkey River, actually. And this was supposed to be the new capital of the South African Republic. In Dutch, it's the Sud-Afrikanische Republik, or ZAR. The elder Pretorius was actually a national hero of the Four Trekkers, and this was because he had achieved a victory over the Digani and the Zulus in the Battle of Blood River back in 1838. So the elder Pretorius also negotiated the Sand River Convention in 1852, in which the United Kingdom acknowledged the independence of the Transvaal, which is what South Africa under the Four Trekkers was called. So it became the capital of the South African Republic on the 1st of May, 1860. Now, the founding of Pretoria as the capital of the South African Republic can be seen as marking the end of the Boer settlement movement during the Great Trek. This is where they actually settled down instead of trying to find their, their new homeland. Now, they did come into conflict with the English, and during the First Boer War, the city was besieged by Republican forces in December of 1880 and in March of 1881. The peace treaty that ended the war was actually signed in Pretoria on the 3rd of August in 1881 at what was called the Pretoria Convention. Now, almost 20 years later, the Second Boer War resulted in the end of the Transvaal Republic and start and the start of British hegemony in South Africa. So the city surrendered to British forces under Frederick Roberts on the 5th of June in 1900. But the conflict that it ended in Pretoria itself once again with the signing of the Peace of Ringenen on the 31st of May 1902 at the Melrose House. Now, they did construct a lot of forts around Pretoria, and they're called the Pretoria Forts, and they were built to defend the city just right before the Second Boer War. A lot of these forts have kind of fallen to ruin today, but a number of them have actually been preserved as national monuments, and you can still visit them today. Now, something that's kind of interesting, at least I think so, is that in May, the 26th to be specific, in 2005, the South African Geographical Names Council, which is linked to the Directorate of Heritage and the Department of Arts and Culture, actually approved changing the name of Pretoria to Tishwana. Uh, Tishwana was a, a, a South African, he was the chief of one of the South African tribes. And it is also already the name of the metropolitan municipality in which Pretoria and the surrounding cities are located. Now, even though this governing body approved the name change, it wasn't approved by the Minister of Arts and Culture, who at the time requested further research on the matter. Now, if they do give this approval, the name change will then be published in the Government Gazette, and it will give the public an opportunity to comment and debate on the matter. And then the minister can then refer the public response back to the South African Geographical Names Council before presenting a recommendation before Parliament, in which case it would vote on it. Now, various public interest groups have warned that any name change would be challenged in court should the minister approve it. And it's a very, very long process. Interestingly enough, though, the Tishwana Metro Council has advertised, quote, Africa's leading capital city, end quote, as Tishwana since the South African Geographical Names Council's decision in 2005. This did lead to controversy, however, as the name of the city hadn't been changed and the council was, at best, acting prematurely. And so when a complaint was lodged with the Advertising Standards Authority, it ruled that such advertisements are deliberately misleading and should be withdrawn from all media. And as of today, they still haven't made a ruling on whether or not the name change will be approved or not.
Oh, wow. So now that we have a little bit of background in the city, um, <laughs> how about we go deeper into the case? Yes. So Reva Rebecca Steenkamp was born on August 19, 1983, in Cape Town, South Africa. She grew up with her father, Barry, who was a horse trainer, her mother, June, and two half-siblings. She loved to go horseback riding until her early 20s when she broke her back and had to learn to walk again. Steenkamp attended St. Dominic's Priory School, then studied law at the University of Port Elizabeth, which became part of the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University, where she graduated with a Bachelor of Law degree in 2005. Steenkamp had been modeling since she was 14 years old. She was in FHM magazine, as well as a model for Savannah Diamonds. She also became the first face of Avon in South Africa, as well as becoming the celebrity face of the Spirit Day anti-bullying campaign in 2012. Steenkamp also worked in television and starred in a variety of advertisements. She worked for a time as the presenter for Fashion TV in South Africa and was a celebrity contestant on the BBC lifestyle show called Baking Made Easy in 2012. In late 2012, Steenkamp began dating Oscar Pistorius. Oscar Leonard Carl Pistorius was born on November 22, 1986. He was born with a congenital defect, missing the outside of both feet and both fibulae. This led to the below-knee amputation of both legs at 11 months old. He ran in both disabled sprint events for below-knee amputees as well as non-disabled races. So, Oscar Pistorius, he was very famous even before this case for his athletic achievements. For example, he was the 10th athlete to compete at both the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games. And after becoming a Paralympic champion, Pistorius attempted to enter non-disabled international competition over persistent objections by the International Association of Athletics Federation. And the argument was that his artificial limbs actually gave him an unfair advantage. So Pistorius did prevail in this legal dispute, and at the 2011 World Championship in Athletics, Pistorius was the first amputee to win a non-disabled world track medal. And at the 2012 Summer Olympics, Pistorius was the first double-leg amputee participant. He was sometimes referred to as the Blade Runner, after the science fiction film of the same name, of course, and the fastest man with no legs. So Pistorius took part in the 2004 Summer Paralympics in Athens and came in third overall in the 100-meter event. Despite actually falling down in the preliminary round for the 200 meters, he qualified for the final. And he went on to win the final in a world record time of 21.97 seconds. And he actually beat a pair of American runners, Marlon Shirley and Brian Frazier, both of whom were single amputees. So... Yeah, so he would run in both the single and double amputee races for the Paralympics. Now, he has been the subject of criticism because of claims that his artificial limbs gave him an advantage over runners with natural ankles and feet. And he actually took part in a study at the University of Cologne to figure out, you know, how much of an advantage it actually gave him. And he ran against several professional Italian runners, and actually they did beat him. So that's one of the reasons that he was allowed eventually to compete in non-disabled competitions as well. So then that brings us to the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. And on the 4th of August, 2012, Pistorius became the debut amputee runner to compete at an Olympic Games. In the 400-meter race, he took second place in the first heat of five runners, finishing with a time of 45.44 seconds, which was his best time that season. 
to advance to the semifinals on the 5th of August. There he ran in the second semifinal. There he finished eighth and last with a time of 46.54 seconds. Now, he was also part of the 4x400 meters relay race team for South Africa. They finished eighth in the final, but posted a team best time of three minutes and 3.46 seconds that season. And interestingly to note, Pistorius was actually chosen to carry the South African flag for the closing ceremonies that year. So now that we have established his athletic endeavors, what actually happened? So in the early morning hours of Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2013, Pistorius shot at Steen Camp four times in the head and upper body, three hit her. He stated he thought she was an intruder and shot her through a closed bathroom door. Pistorius was taken into custody and formally charged with murder in a Pretoria court on February 15th, 2013. He also faced three firearms charges. He had previously faced a firearms charge where he allegedly accidentally fired a gun in a restaurant. He also fired a weapon through an open sunroof and laughed about it, which he later denied. Pistorius pleaded not guilty to the murder and firearms charges, stating that he believed an intruder had broken into his home and was in the bathroom when he fired. A witness, Michelle Berger, stated that she heard blood-curdling screams that night and that she heard a man and a woman shouting. She stated the fear in that woman's voice. You only fear like that if your life is threatened. Then she heard four gunshots. Later, the defense said that perhaps the screams were not a woman's, but a distressed man's voice. There are also sounds of Pistorius beating down the bathroom door with a cricket bat, which implied that it could have sounded like screams as well. So, just to be brutally honest on this, this is sounding to me absolutely ridiculous. Yes. If you hear a woman screaming and pleading for her life, or screaming in general, feeling like her life is threatened, Versus a man shouting or screaming is two totally different things. And I've also never heard a wooden object beating on another wooden object sounding like a woman screaming. Right. I, I'm sorry, this, this is, I understand that, you know, things happen and, and people panic, but I don't know what lawyer allowed him to say such things. <laughs> Right. But maybe he should have found a different one because that's sorry. It's it's just too outlandish for me. Yes. So Pistorius stated that he approached the bathroom with a gun thinking it was a robber and that he was trying to protect Steen Camp. He also accused the prosecution of trying to use inadmissible evidence and for the quote unquote assassination of my character and said that any suggestions that he deliberately killed Steen Camp could not be further from the truth. Neighbor Charles Johnson stated that he heard screams and four consecutive shots and assumed the neighbors were being robbed. There were multiple witnesses who stated that they heard both screams and gunshots at night. Samantha Taylor, Pistorius's ex-girlfriend, was questioned in court in relation to both the sounds of his screams as well as his use of firearms. A security guard on duty the night of Steenkamp's death testified as well. He'd been alerted to the house after neighbors reported hearing gunshots, and Pistorius told him, everything is fine, tearfully. On the sixth day of court, the judge blocked broadcasting of the testimony of Gert Seyman, who conducted the autopsy, stating that it would have an explicitly graphic nature and should not be shown around the world. The forensic pathologist stated that Pistorius used an expanding bullet in his gun, which is designed to cause maximum tissue damage. Food in Steenkamp's stomach suggested that she had last eaten around 1 a.m., two hours before her death. 
This raised some questions as Pistorius had stated that they went to bed around 10 p.m. During this testimony, Pistorius reacted by bending over, holding his hands over his ears as if trying to block out the words. He was violently sick. A forensic expert testified that Pistorius was not wearing his prosthetic legs, which he claimed he was, when he beat the bathroom door down with a cricket bat after the shooting. However, the prosecution confirmed that they accepted he was not wearing his prosthesis when he fired the gun. On the ninth day of court, gruesome images of Steen Camp were inadvertently shown in court, horrifying people, and it caused Pistorius to vomit. The police official that showed the images was trying to show crime scene photos instead. Police photographs showed Pistorius bare-chested in shorts, wearing his prosthetic legs. He was covered in blood. South African police were accused of theft as the defense claimed two luxury wristwatches went missing from Pistorius's bedroom the day he was arrested. One formal police colonel said that he saw a ballistics expert at the scene examining the firearm used to kill Steenkamp without gloves on. Pistorius's love of firearms was well known, and he knew the country's gun laws well based on licensing examination records. These included the question about whether he could fire at burglars stealing a television from his home. He wrote, no, life is not in danger. There was also an incident in 2012 where Pistorius thought there was an intruder in his home. He drew his gun and cleared the house, only to discover that it was his washing machine. Pistorius even tweeted about the incident, stating, nothing like getting home to hear the washing machine on and thinking it's an intruder to go full combat recon mode into the pantry. Steenkamp's mother, June, attended the trial for the first time on the 11th day of court. She nodded to Pistorius, and his sister Amy walked over and spoke to her. Police ballistics expert Chris Mangina said that Steenkamp was standing in the bathroom facing the locked door when she was hit in the right hip by the first bullet. Steenkamp then slumped into a seated or semi-seated position on top of a magazine roll. The second bullet missed her and ricocheted off the wall, which bruised her back. Then she was hit in her right arm and head by the third and fourth shots. She collapsed with her head on the toilet seat. He described the bullets that hit her, which were designed to cause maximum damage. It hits the target, it opens up, it creates six talons, and these talons are sharp. It cuts through the organs of a human being. Police mobile phone expert Francois Muller read out WhatsApp messages between Steenkamp and Pistorius, and she said, You have picked on me excessively. I do everything to make you happy, and you do everything to throw tantrums. I'm scared of you sometimes and how you snap at me and of how you will react to me. You make me happy 90% of the time, and I think we're amazing together. I'm the girl who fell in love with you, but I'm also the girl who gets sidestepped when you're in a bad mood. I get snapped at and told my accent and voices are annoying. So here again, like you can read in this text, like there are things that are at least red flags for abuse. And it begs the question, at least to me, and it made me look this up. I was curious as to what percentage of women are actually murdered by their partner. So digging into this, the percentage of, of women murdered by an intimate partner was five times higher for women than it is for men. And of the estimated 4,970 female victims of murder in 2021 and non-negligent manslaughter, the data reported by law enforcement agencies indicated, do you have uh, a guess for the percentage? I don't, but I bet it's high. It indicates that 34% of all of them were killed by an intimate partner. Yeah, that's a high number. That is. That's over a third. Over a third of these murder victims were murdered by the person that they trusted and loved the most. So 
it just goes to show, like we've shown in other cases, the the pattern of abuse and leading up to more and more violence. It's uh, it's a pattern of behavior, and I think it's something that we can see once again here. Yes. So were there any more messages or anything else in the messages? So Mueller stated that around 90% of all the messages were normal conversations and loving conversations. Out of 1,700 messages, only four showed that they argued. Prior to the events of that day, Pistorius had browsed car and pornographic websites. Nothing he searched or reviewed indicated the shooting was about to occur. Calls made to and from Pistorius's phone the night of Steenkamp's death showed that after alerting security guards and the ambulance service, he called his friend, his brother, and his manager. He also made a call to his own voicemail, but that may have been by mistake. Police warrant officer Adrian Meritz told the court that the police computer system showed no record of Pistorius had ever reported a crime or reported being the victim of a crime. On the 17th day, Pistorius took the stand. He was tearful and began speaking in a broken voice to apologize to the family and friends of Steenkamp, stating there was not a moment that he, when he wasn't thinking of her family and prayed for them daily. He stated, I've tried to put my words on paper many times to write to you, but no words would ever suffice. Pistorius painted himself as a picture of woe, stating that he often woke with terrible nightmares and had begun taking antidepressants and sleeping pills since the shooting. He stated that his religious faith was the only thing to sustain him in the years since the shooting, saying, There have been many times when I've just been struggling a lot. My God is a God of refuge. He also spoke at length about his fear and experience of the crime. He said his mother worried about intruders and kept a pistol under her pillow. The court adjoined early that day as Pistorius was too emotional to continue. The next day, Pistorius stated that he heard a noise in the night and grabbed the gun he always kept under the bed. He said he yelled for Steenkamp to call the police as he was terrified the intruders had entered the house. He said that he heard a noise coming from inside the toilet. Before I knew it, I had fired four shots at the door. Pistorius removed his prosthetic legs in court to demonstrate how he'd stood by the bathroom door, which had been brought to the courtroom. He stated, before thinking out of fear, I fired four shots. I didn't intend to shoot anyone. I fired my firearm before I could think, before I even had a moment to comprehend what was happening. I believed someone was coming out the toilet. Prosecutors demanded to know why Steenkamp didn't respond when he shouted for her to call the police, stating, she wasn't scared of an intruder, she was scared of you. Pistoria stated that Steenkamp didn't scream when the bullets hit her. Prosecution alleged that Pistorius intentionally fired at Steenkamp after she fled to the bathroom during an argument. They accused him of changing his defense from putative self-defense to involuntary action, and when he said that he didn't have time to think before firing his gun. So, it's kind of important to note the change in his plea. In both cases, he pled innocent, but with different reasons. In the first case, he says that he is pleading innocent due to putative self-defense, meaning that He felt that his life or the life of his partner was in imminent danger, and he acted in self-defense. He changed it to involuntary action. And what involuntary action really boils down to is that criminal acts must be voluntary or controllable and cannot consist solely of the defendant's status or thoughts. So just one voluntary act is needed for a crime. So if a voluntary act is followed by an involuntary act, the defendant can still be criminally responsible. So in this case, what the prosecution is really arguing is that his voluntary act was to go get the gun and shoot through the door intentionally. The involuntary act was that 
he hit his partner instead of an intruder. So he, he wasn't meaning to hit this person, but the acts leading up to it have caused it to be able to be criminally prosecuted. Kind of an important distinction. It's, again, him trying to not take ownership of what happened. Right. So what happened once they, they were done examining him? So once Pistorius's examination was done, Roger Dixon, an expert witness for the defense, was accused of irresponsibility. He admitted that he was not trained in ballistics, light, sound, or blood spatter evidence, and was not present at Steam Camp's postmortem examination. Dixon presented a different order of the shots that killed Steenkamp and contradicted the state pathologist by saying a bruise on her right buttock was caused by her falling back on the magazine rack. Thirty days into the trial, the prosecution asked for a mental health evaluation. This came after a defense witness, a forensic psychiatrist, said that Pistorius suffered from generalized anxiety disorder at the time of the shooting and a depressive disorder following it. The defense argued against the evaluation, but the judge allowed it and Pistorius underwent a 30-day mental health evaluation. The report came back that Pistorius was not suffering from a quote-unquote mental disorder or defect when he shot Steenkamp and was not incapable of telling right from wrong or of acting on that understanding of right and wrong. The panel of mental health experts concluded that Pistorius suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. The prosecution wrapped up their argument by saying Pistorius took the gun and walked down the hall to the bathroom, showing premeditation. They said he was an appalling witness whose testimony was devoid of truth, vague, argumentative, and mendacious. They said he did not have anxiety, but quote-unquote anxiety on call. They stated that regardless of who was behind the door, Pistorius was guilty of murder. Whether he knew it was Steenkamp and it was premeditated, or that he knew he would likely kill the intruder and it was not premeditated, he meant to fire the gun at the person in the bathroom. Prosecution also stated that the other charges faced and denied by Pistorius showed a pattern of behavior that he acts recklessly and doesn't take responsibility for his actions. The defense, however, said that Pistorius should be acquitted. They stated that he believed he was firing in self-defense, it was purely reflexive, and that he lacked criminal capacity. They stated he had no motive to kill Steenkamp. The defense called to question the witness hearing the screams as well as their testimony on timing. They also alleged that the police had disturbed the scene. The prosecutor stated that Pistorius's two defenses, self-defense and that he fired involuntarily, were not just mutually exclusive but mutually destructive. On September 11, 2014, Judge Masipo ruled out the possibility that Pistorius would be found guilty of murder. The judge said that the state had failed to prove premeditated murder and that the evidence was purely circumstantial. So circumstantial evidence, that's something that Everybody that's ever watched an episode of Law & Order have heard an objection based on circumstantial evidence. On its own, circumstantial evidence allows for more than one explanation. Different pieces of circumstantial evidence may be required so that each corroborates the conclusions drawn from the other. Together, they may more strongly support one particular inference over another. An explanation involving circumstantial evidence becomes more likely once alternative explanations have been ruled out. Kind of like the old Sherlock Holmes quote, when you eliminate the impossible, whatever is left, no matter how improbable is the truth. Similar situation there. So circumstantial evidence allows for a trier of fact to infer that a fact actually does exist. 
In criminal law, the inference is made by the trier of fact to support the truth of an assertion, whether that is guilt or absence of guilt. Now, reasonable doubt is often tied into circumstantial evidence as that evidence relies on inference. So it was put in place because circumstantial evidence may not be enough to convict someone fairly, because if there is any reasonable doubt, then you have to acquit them. And reasonable doubt is described as the highest standard of proof used in court and means that a juror can find the defendant guilty of crimes to a moral certainty. So even when circumstantial evidence is not sufficient to convict or acquit, it can contribute to other decisions made about the case. So the unfortunate thing or fortunate, however, this judge is reading this, is that the state failed to really bring in anything other than possibilities. They didn't have enough to, in his opinion, fully solidify the argument that they were given. There was enough that you could see why the prosecution was saying what they did, but the prosecution really seems to have dropped the ball in tying it all together. Yes. So did he say anything else? Yes. The judge said it was clear that Pistorius had acted unlawfully in shooting the person behind the door. A reasonable person would not have fired four shots into the cubicle because he would have foreseen that someone could be killed. Pistorius acted too hastily and used excessive force. It is clear that his conduct was negligent. Pistorius was found guilty of manslaughter and not guilty of further of two further firearms charges, the incident with the sunroof and that he had possession of illegal ammunition. He was found guilty of negligently discharging a loaded gun for the restaurant incident. Lawyers for June and Barry Steenkamp stated that Pistorius will pay them 6,000 South African Rand, a little over $322 in the U.S., monthly, and they agreed not to pursue a civil claim. Judge Masipa sentenced Pistorius to a five-year prison sentence for the culpable homicide, as well as a three-year sentence for discharging the firearm inside the restaurant, which was wholly suspended in order to be served concurrently. On June 8, 2015, South African Commissioner of Correctional Services, Zach Modice, said that the Prison Case Management Committee had recommended that Pistorius be released under correctional supervision on August 21, 2015, after serving a sixth of his sentence. He was scheduled to be released under house arrest and correctional supervision and would possibly have to complete community service. This was based on the fact that he had had good behavior and was not considered a danger to the community. Pistorius would also not be allowed to return to official athletic competition until the whole five years of his sentence was completed. However, on August 19, 2015, the Justice Minister, Michael Masutha, sent the case to the Parole Review Board, stating that they should not have started considering parole until he had completed this sixth of his sentence. The Parole Board met and referred the decision back to the original parole panel, stating that Pistorius should be subjected to psychotherapy as part of the parole conditions. His family questioned the legality of the delay, suggesting that due to the public, political, and media hype, he was not treated like other prisoners. They also stated he was already receiving ongoing psychotherapy. On October 15, 2015, the parole board confirmed that Pistorius would be released to house arrest on October 20, 2015. He was actually released on October 19, 2015. On October 27, 2014, the prosecution confirmed that they would seek an appeal against the verdict and the sentence. Judge Masipa gave prosecutors leave to appeal the murder acquittal, but not the five-year sentencing given for culpable homicide. On March 13, 2015, the judge dismissed the defense application to block prosecutors from appealing the culpable homicide conviction, stating it would be the same as reviewing her own decision to permit the application. 
September 14, 2015, the defense filed paperwork to argue that the state was disputing Judge Masipa's finding that Pistorius didn't intend to kill Steenkamp, but it wasn't allowed. The Supreme Court of Appeal confirmed that the appeal would be heard on November 3, 2015. That day, the prosecution argued that the identity of the person behind the door was irrelevant. The defense stated that Pistorius genuinely believed his life was in danger when he opened fire. On December 3rd, 2015, the court overturned the original verdict and entered a conviction of murder, stating Pistorius didn't fear his own life was in danger. This was a unanimous decision by five judges who said that he was using a high caliber weapon, had firearms training, and should have realized that whoever was behind the door might die. Pistorius would continue to remain free on bail, but had to remain under house arrest and was required to give up his passport. He was allowed to leave home between 7 a.m. and 12 p.m. each day, but had to stay within a 20-kilometer radius of his uncle's home where he was staying. On January 11, 2016, Pistorius applied for leave to appeal to the Constitutional Court. His lawyer stated that the Supreme Court of Appeal had, quote-unquote, acted unlawfully and unconstitutionally by rejecting factual findings of the original verdict and made mistakes. This application was denied. On July 26, 2016, Judge Masipa sentenced Pistorius to six years in prison for murder, though the prosecution had called for 15 years, the minimum sentence in South Africa for murder. The judge argued that Pistorius had already served 12 months for the culpable homicide conviction and was remorseful for it. In November 2017, the South African Supreme Court of Appeal added nine years to the sentence to total 15 years following a government appeal. Pistorius was eligible for parole in 2023, but was denied on March 31st, 2023. As of the time of this airing, January 5th, 2024, Pistorius has been granted parole. Steenkamp's mother, June, stated, At this time, I am not convinced that Oscar has been rehabilitated. Rehabilitation requires someone to engage honestly with the full truth of his crime and the consequences thereof. Nobody can claim to have remorse if they are not able to engage fully with the truth. If someone does not show remorse, they cannot be considered to be rehabilitated. At the time of her death, Steenkamp had filmed for the series Tropica Island of Treasure, which she had completed filming in Jamaica. Two days after her death, the series began airing. The first episode was dedicated to her and had a video tribute to her that played before the episode. The International Paralympic Committee said that Pistorius would be allowed to compete in future sporting events. So for me, this case has been not so hard to figure out i suppose is a good way to put it for me it seems reasonably obvious that he shot through the door with the intent to kill right his partner mm-hmm. steen camp and him it seemed they got into an argument there were screams i mean he was trained he understood things i just i don't i don't see this not i i mean he was convicted for a reason Let's put it that way. And there were just so many things leading up to it. Her being fearful, saying that that he scared her. The way that he flip flops on certain issues. You know, I understand that he was very emotional and whatnot in court, but we've seen that time and time again. This takes absolutely nothing away from his athletic accomplishments. This is one of those cases where. I'm going to separate art from artist, I guess is the best way to put it. But to me, I feel like he got off very, very, very lightly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's necessarily because of my perception of the justice system being skewed by 
by American courts handing down much heavier sentences. Right. But this judge in particular, whose name pops up several times, Judge Masipa, I don't mean to question his integrity or anything. He sat in on the case. He knows it as well as anybody. And he seems to have a reason for doing what he's doing. But he seemed to be incredibly lax on on Oscar Pistorius. I'm not saying that he got away with anything because he did spend over 10 years of his sentence thereabouts. I believe he's released today, in fact. Yes. So, you know, this is I mean, he released he, he is on parole, so he's he's going to have to still take part in the justice system and he will be under stricter rules than someone who just lives. But he committed several crimes leading up to this as far as, you know, ammunition and whatnot that he wasn't allowed to have. I truly, truly hope that he has been rehabilitated because I am all for granting people second chances. I am all for using prison to rehabilitate rather than just to punish. I think that the U.S. really, really needs to rework its prison system. Um, I've never held back on my thoughts on that. So time will tell if he is truly remorseful. And if he is, then I, I wish him the best. But the interviews that I had seen with him and some of the court scenes that I had seen with him, he's very combative. He does not take responsibility for anything. So, again, this is one of those times that I, I hope that he can realize what he did, much like Steam Camp's mother says, that you know he needs to engage honestly and accept what he did and then show remorse yeah. and move forward. So here's to hope that that, is, that that is the truth and that the judge has seen something that maybe I just don't. And yeah, I think this is a case. The justice system, I mean, in theory, it worked. He's been rehabilitated and he will be released back into society after paying his debt. So I'm sure that we'll be reading about him in future Paralympic events. So maybe we'll have an update at some point. Yeah, maybe. However, I do believe that that brings us to our missing persons case of the week. It does. And what do you have for us this week, Rebel? So this week, we're actually looking at two missing teens from Norfolk, Nebraska. Cody Kester has been missing since September 30th, 2023. He's Native American, 16 years old, 5 foot 9 inches tall, and weighs about 130 pounds. He has brown hair and brown eyes. And Tavian Wright has been missing since November 27th, 2023. He is also Native American, 16 years old. He's five foot three, weighs 115 pounds, and he has brown hair and brown eyes. There's not much known about the circumstances surrounding their disappearances. So that's really about all we know. We don't know when they were last seen, what they were doing when they were last seen, anything like that. It's kind of a mystery for both of them. But they both came up for this very rural area of Nebraska. So I thought we would highlight them and see if we can get some information out about them. Yeah, I wasn't able to find anything else about the case either. It seems like they're really holding everything really close to their chest. Now, at the time of this recording, they haven't been missing for very long. So the police may be holding some of the, the evidence back just in case. 
that's not uncommon, but right. hopefully we can get them found. Do we have any pictures of them on our website or anything for that, Rebel? We do, yep. We have a picture of both of them up on the website, so go check them out and see if you recognize them. Now, if someone does have any information, who should they be contacting? So they can contact the Norfolk Police Division at 402-644-8700 or the Nebraska Missing Persons Clearinghouse at 877-441-LOST-5678. Excellent. And always, uh, you can also contact Crime Stoppers anonymously, give your tips. Let's make sure that we can get these boys home and uh, let's make sure that they don't end up on our show for other reasons. Yes, exactly. Well, that was a rather timely episode. Who knows? He might it be was. walking out of prison right now into his new paroled freedom. Yes. Well, Rebel, thank you for all your time and effort. I know that there was a lot going on with this case. And Definitely. to get the timing right, hopefully this this gives our listeners some background info into some current events as well. Oftentimes it's it's kind of hard to keep a lot of true crime things as relevant as this one is. So mm-hmm. hats off to you for for finding this and, and putting this together. Yeah, it was awesome. So, if our lovely listeners want to tell their friends and family where to find us, where should they look? So, we're on Podbean. That's our hosting. We're available on most of the major podcasting sites, so Apple, Spotify, Amazon, etc. We can always be found at Murderosity uh, or Murderosity Podcast on most of the social media sites. And we're always looking for new and interesting cases, whether they be creepy, weird, missing persons and so you can always email us at murderosity at gmail.com excellent well i think that's gonna wrap things up for this week yes all righty well thank you all for listening once again and we'll hope to see you next week take care all right stay safe out there